When you hear the word zealot, what comes to mind? If you look this word up in the dictionary, zealot emerges, you'll find, from zeal, which is an eager and earnest pursuit of something. Zeal has to do with fervor and passion and ardor, and it's often synonymous with fanatical. This is football season. Some of this may make sense. Like yesterday's big victory for that school in Charlottesville. That win increases the zeal of UVA fans. They haven't had much zeal lately. But really, zeal and zealot, those words are far bigger and critical to our lives than football. A zealot is a person who is fanatical and uncompromising in pursuit of their religious or political or other ideals. When I hear the word zealot in these days, the word gets associated in my mind with recent news headlines. Across the last weeks and months, we've all become familiar with ISIS or ISIS or ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. In a speech this week, our president confirms, yes, we are at war with ISIS. He was referring to a Sunni jihadist group in the Middle East that claims religious authority over all Muslims across the world. This is the group that's been labeled by the United Nations and many countries as a threatening terrorist group, a fundamentalist and extremist organization that has been accused of grave human rights violations. ISIS, in zealous pursuit of their religious and political agenda, has claimed responsibility for much violence in the world, even the beheadings of journalists. The ultimate goal of the group is to establish a caliphate, an Islamic state led by a supreme religious and political leader, the successor to Muhammad. So we have some recent experience with the word zealot. But just to be clear and just to be fair, we can find zealots all across our history and even as a part of our own tradition. A zealot is a fanatical partisan. A zealot is an extreme enthusiast. And that term can be applied to all religions. There have been and there continue to be Christian zealots who become so fanatical that they no longer look Christian to most of us. The word zealot can also be applied to politics such as extremists on political issues. It can be applied to causes. It can be applied to every area where passions are incited from us. Apparently, there is a human tendency toward zealous behavior. When we are passionate, when we are earnest in our support of something, the zeal can lead us into dangerous and unhelpful extremism. The Zealot is also the name of a recent best-selling book by historian and scholar Reza Aslan, and it's about the life of Jesus. We might prefer to talk about Jesus, the loving shepherd. 
We might prefer to talk about Jesus, the bringer of peace and justice. We might prefer to talk about Jesus, the teacher, or the one who stands for universal morals. Aslan makes the case that Jesus was a Jewish zealot, a rebel against Rome and a rebel against Romans' local agents. Jesus preached the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God. We know about this. Aslan says Jesus never intended to found a church, much less a religion. The zealot, Aslan's book, offers keen insights into Jesus and into first century Palestine, Jesus' context. It's about the life of Jesus from a historian and scholar's perspective, not a faith perspective. And it's another perspective on the word zealot. Today's scripture verse engages us with another zealot. Here's the single verse for this day. It's Acts 9.5. Listen. He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like last week, And in some recent weeks, we are in the book of Acts. Jesus, following his resurrection and following his appearance to the disciples, Jesus has ascended into heaven. The work of the coming reign of God, inaugurated, initiated by Jesus, is now passed to the disciples. They are to carry on his ministry, these disciples, preaching and teaching, healing and loving, building community, sharing God's light and love, helping people realize that life comes from God and life is about serving God. That's their message. Real life, real faith, real purpose is discovered as we trust God with our lives and as we serve God every day, working for joy and working for justice, working for peace and light wherever we find ourselves. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message of Jesus' disciples. At the end of Acts chapter 7, we realize again how difficult it is for faithful ministry to be carried out in the world, especially when faithful ministry rubs up against the world. At the end of Acts 7, we have the stoning of Stephen, one of the disciples. Stephen is described in Acts 6 as a man full full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He was one chosen early on by the original disciples as they worked for the care of orphans and and widows, as they worked for the teaching of God's ways in the world, as they worked for the building of Christian community. Stephen, it says, full of grace and power in another place, did great wonders and signs among the people. He always spoke with wisdom and the Spirit. That's what it says in Acts 6, 8. And if, you look for, if you're looking for a fantastic summary of the whole Old Testament, you need to look no further than Acts chapter 7 and Stephen's remarkable story, his sermon. Stephen speaks to the people, and he reviews 1,000 years of God and God's people. But the people didn't like the message from Stephen, especially the way Stephen convicted the people for not living as God's people. So at the end of Acts 7... We find the stoning of Stephen. 
this disciple of grace and wisdom who loved God and sought to help other people love God and love one another, Stephen, stoned to death. At that scene, at the end of Acts 7, the stoning of Stephen, there was a young man named Saul. It says those who were stoning Stephen laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of the killing of Stephen. In fact, this persecution against the the disciples gained much momentum that day. By the beginning of Acts 9, just one chapter separated from Acts 7, it says Saul is still breathing murder against the disciples of the Lord. In fact, Saul becomes a type of bounty hunter. He's willing to travel and go all the way to Damascus and other places and find these people of the way so he can continue the persecution. So as Saul was on his way to Damascus on the road to persecute the people of this emerging Jesus movement about the coming reign of God, about loving God and loving God's people, a light from heaven flashed around Saul, it says, and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Saul was blinded by the light at that moment. Saul had to be led to Damascus because he was so blinded. In Damascus, Saul had an encounter with a man named Ananias who laid his hands on Saul and prayed for the Holy Spirit to fill Saul's heart and life. And then Ananias commissioned Saul, who later became Paul, to serve among the disciples, commissioned. And for several days, it says, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus. He was proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues there. He was saying Jesus is the Son of God there. He was advocating for Jesus and the coming reign of God. And many of the stories that follow in the book of Acts convey Saul's, Paul's, passion for Jesus, his extensive journeys spreading the word, sharing light and hope across the whole region, working for the emerging reign of God. In fact, the gospel, the gospel of God's light and love that comes to the world in Jesus, comes to the Gentiles, comes to us because of Paul, Saul, the apostle. All of this feels so pertinent today. All of this feels so provocative to me today as we keep thinking about our lives, as we think about faithful living and what that might mean for us in 2014 in downtown Richmond and wherever we find ourselves. All of this seems so pertinent and so provocative, especially as we find ourselves on this second Sunday in September. We have moved into the program year as God's people at Second Presbyterian Church. We have begun church school classes, opportunities for faith and fellowship where we can grow and where we can encourage one another in the journey of discipleship. We want to commit our lives to worshiping and working as God's people together. There are many things we can do on Sunday mornings. We choose to come here and to keep coming here to pray and to sing, to study 
and challenge one another and think and ask questions. We come here to recommit our lives to serving God. We come here seeking to become all that God expects of us, faithful disciples on the journey. We come here to affirm that we are people who love God and we want to love God and love others better every day of our lives. This is what we're about in Christian community and Christian witness in this city, in this day and time for the world, as our mission statement says. We're also starting second course groups. We're also uh, seeking to find other opportunities to connect and deepen faith and find life together. We're invited to stay together for lunch and enjoy connections that increase our sense of community. We are revving up our service efforts around this city so we can find places where each of us can give our gifts and serve God in this city and for God's coming reign. We want to care for the less fortunate. We want to serve as Jesus served. We will soon be thinking again about stewardship and about discipleship and our devotion with our pledges and our commitments as we keep on this journey together. All of this, all of this is about the coming reign of God into our midst. It is. Zealot may not be the word that we want to use to describe our lives of faith. Zealot may be too much about fanaticism and extremism and fervor. Those words generate caution, and they should. But there's another danger, too, and that is lukewarm faith. That's being placid and indifferent about our faith. Faith that really doesn't affect our lives. Faith that really doesn't enrich us. Faith that really doesn't help us connect to each other and keep transforming us so that we'll be kind of the kind of people that God calls us to be. That's always a danger too. Placid faith. Indifferent faith. So how do we find inspiration and how do we find enlightenment from this story of the conversion, the call of Saul the zealot? who turned from persecuting Christians to a leader in the Christian community, the whole Christian movement. What do we glean from this story of the blinding of Saul to the baptism and the new commitment of Saul, the apostle, the apostle of God? Like Saul, maybe we're so focused so much on our own ministry, on our own lives, on our own missions. So certain this is the way to life. We get so entrenched in thinking. We can indeed get so consumed in our daily pursuits that we find ourselves a long way from what God intends. As Saul was going along, as Saul was approaching Damascus on his mission, suddenly a light from heaven flashed and blinded him. He fell to the ground and he heard the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Often in the Bible, there is this double vocative to convey God's powerful appearance on the scene, this double vocative to convey God at work, interrupting and changing things. Saul, Saul, it says, Other stories of divine calling and divine interruption happen similarly. Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 22. Jacob, Jacob in Genesis 46. Moses, Moses in Exodus 3, 4. Where and how 
and in what voice might God be calling you in this powerful, interruptive, double vocative? What moment, what situation might God be trying to redirect you and your life? Where and how might God be speaking so that we're going to step back and so we're going to find fresh perspectives that redirect our lives to more and deeper faithfulness, loving God, loving God's people. I'm more and more convinced that God stays in our midst. God stays in our midst and keeps calling us and keeps claiming us for God's purposes. Too often we are so focused and too confident that we have it figured out like Saul. Only we need to be turned and redirected and reoriented toward faithfulness. And that question, why do you persecute me, reminds us that what we do to others, we do to Christ. Recall the words from the 25th chapter of Matthew where Jesus says, as you do to the least of these, you do it to me. This question invites careful reflection from our lives. Are there places in my life? Are there places in your life, our lives together, where actions or associations or connections that actually take us opposite of what God intends need to be rethought and addressed? And we need to turn. Are we aligning our lives in ways that actually harm God's purposes All of this invites us to think afresh about our lives, our pursuits, our various activities, engagements. Do our lives align with God's purposes, with God's life? Do our intentions line up with God's plans? Saul was so confident. Saul was so self-assured in what he was doing. Perhaps when we're most sure, when we're most strident, we need to check our lives and check our alignment. And that's a good question for the whole world. We need to check our lives and check our alignment with God. The bright light, the abrupt moment became blinding for Saul also. He couldn't even go any further without somebody leading him. Perhaps when we are brought to our knees and when we don't know where to turn and when we're Uh, most in need of help and care from others, something many of us don't like to receive. Perhaps when we're in that moment of desperation, most blinded about where to go and how to get there, maybe it's in those moments that God is most present and in those moments that God is most powerfully at work calling us and leading us into new places of life and faith and God's service. That's certainly how it was for Paul. And then we see this dramatic transition from darkness to light that happens as he gets to Damascus, from chaos to meaning, from blindness to seeing. Blinded by the light, he was led into town. Then he was touched by and baptized by Ananias and then enfolded into the community of Christians the very people he was persecuting, persecuting, he was enfolded into their community. This is when Saul's life took on new meaning, new direction. This saga for Saul points to the extreme importance of fellowship for faithfulness 
when we try to go it alone, whatever might be our Damascus road, when we try to go it alone and save the whole world and do it all ourselves, maybe we're more readily off track than we know it. For Saul, God stepped in. For Saul, God provided light and help and care and then mentors and then baptism and then community. All of it, God stepping in. God is always stepping in and helping us, working with us and for us. We need one another in this journey. We're always better together in this journey. The story of the conversion of Paul the Zealot. The story of this call to a life in God's faithful service. Effective service is so important. It appears three different times in the book of Acts. There are three different renditions of this same story in the book of Acts on Damascus Road. All of this is to say how very easy it is to get off track. All of this to say how very important it is to be listening and open and watching for ways we can be about God's good work in the world. Let's each seek to be open this day and every day to God's love and God's presence. Let's each seek to discern God calling us to faithful life and faithful ministry. And let's keep seeking to serve God with our lives, loving as Jesus loved, caring as Jesus cared, spreading light and hope as Jesus did. May that be our mission, our intention, always and forever. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us pray. We believe, O God, help our unbelief. We trust you, O God, help us to trust you more. We want to serve you, follow you, show us the way. Amen.